Okay, let's move on to our sixth session together. In our last session, we talked about the ever-increasing escalation like spiral bands of a hurricane, that the closer we get to the eye wall or the eye of the hurricane, the greater the intensity and the shorter the frequency becomes the closer we get to the center of a hurricane. And how that in the 1700s and in the 1800s we saw great, great increase in the move of God. I mean, the Protestant Reformation in the days of Martin Luther was a theological reformation. It was about theology. It was about doctrine more than it was about revelation. But it was bringing a truth to the church, a new understanding of the Bible and the truth of what God wants and what God desires from His people, which is salvation by faith, not salvation by works and by indulgences and and all of these other things that most people believe. But it was salvation by faith in Jesus. And then with the 1700s, these great awakenings where people were literally raised from the dead out of religion and out of doctrine and came into brand new, vibrant, living relationships with Almighty God. And how that layer upon layer, line upon line, precept upon precept, every revival becomes almost like a rung on a ladder. If you can imagine a ladder. And every time you move to the next rung, you move to a higher level. You don't discount where you just were, but you take that knowledge, you take that experience, you take that revelation, and you move to a higher level of greater knowledge, greater revelation, greater experience. And every revival builds upon the revivals that have preceded it. And that's why we're such a blessed people in our generation, is we have precedent, we have history, we have understanding, we have records of what God has done in the past. That's the reason I keep saying again and again and again that we're not asking God to do something that has never been done before. We are asking Him to come and take us to the next rung, the next level, the next outpouring, the next open heaven to do for us again what history tells us even secular historians acknowledge. The impact of the things that God has done in seasons of jubilee, in seasons of revival, in the history of nations past. When God has come and moved in phenomenal ways, and everything shifted, and everything changed. The 17 and 1800s were critical centuries of transition leading up to the 20th century, which some historians, some who studied revival, have actually called the 20th century the century of revival because it is believed by some, if not most, that the occurrence of revival in the 20th century was far, far greater than the revivals of the previous centuries combined in both its width and its depth and the frequency by which revivals were birthed in the earth. 
Between 1900 and 1910, the world was literally shaken with global revival in multiple places in ways that had not been seen before since really the days of the first century church. If we look at the sheer numbers of people that were impacted by it, it was a century of the revelation of the glory of God. Some even called it the century of revival. Now, I want us to look in this session together at two of those revivals. Now, this is not to diminish the impact of others. We're going to touch on some of the other revivals in our next couple of sessions together. But in this time together, in this particular session, I want us to look at two revivals that profoundly impacted the entire history of the church. I mean, the very identity of the church. The first one is the Welsh Revival of 1904 through 1906 in a little place called Wales, part of the United Kingdom, where God visited. I have been to the place where the revival began, a little place called Moriah Chapel in a little burg called Alacha, which is kind of a suburb of Swansea, Wales. I've been to the ground zero of the Welsh revival several times over the years. It began on October the 31st, 1904. And the man that was associated with that revival was Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was 26 years old. From the time he was a teenager, he'd had a great love for God, a very sensitive, tender heart. And God had visited Evan Roberts at some level while he was still a teenager and had birthed in his heart a vision of revival in Wales. And Evan Roberts had prayed for revival in Wales. And he had longed to see revival in Wales. Evan Roberts had no clue that he would be the man that God would use to ignite revival in Wales. But Evan Roberts had grown up in Wales and had gone away to Bible school in the fall of 1904. And God had spoken to him and told him to go home and pray for revival, that it is almost upon you. For the Lord had begun to visit Evan Roberts at night, usually after 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, the presence of God would just come and fill his bedroom. And it happened night after night after night after night after night for months before the revival came. Now, think about what's been going on in the church in recent years and how we've come to have such a love for his presence and his glory. In this church, you've come to expect the presence of God in your meeting and the glory. I mean, they're not coming by the tens of thousands. But it's churches like this and groups of people like us that have become just addicted to the presence of God, longing for the presence of God. That became part of the very life's blood of who Evan Roberts was, is the glory of God was coming upon Evan, and Evan liked it. He desperately longed and he passionately believed that God was going to do something phenomenal. I mean, the parallels 
between what is happening in the church and in the earth today, the parallels to other times in history are quite remarkable, I believe, at least from my perspective. What a lot of people don't realize is everybody attributes October the 31st, 1904 to being the ignition point, if you would, of the Welsh Revival. But the reality is, is all the way back to March of 1904. People were having church meetings, were having visitations of God. Whole books have been devoted to the Welsh Revival about the ministries of people like Seth Joshua and some of these young men that were revivalists that were preaching on revival and believing God for revival. The famous Keswick Convention that was held in England every year. These were the leaders of the church in England were coming together for their annual convention. They were convinced at the 1904 gathering together and had been convinced because they had been a part of the prayer movement going back to the late 1800s that we talked about in the last session is that group had been identified with that worldwide prayer network of praying for God to send revival once more. And they believed, I mean, there are references early in 1904 that there was just a sense of expectancy, a sense of urgency that God was, in fact, going to do something. And there were visitations of the presence of God and people experiencing God for months and months and months before the revival ever actually occurred. Evan Roberts came back home and they scheduled a prayer meeting of people to come together at Moriah Chapel. Now, Moriah Chapel was actually two buildings. They had the old building and they had the new brick building. The old building of Moriah Chapel, you could put five of them in here. Wood walls, wood floors, wood pews, some stained glass windows, and a little balcony up around the top. That was the old church building, and that's where Evan Roberts met. They had a prayer meeting to pray that God would send revival to Wales once more. And people came. It was mostly teenagers. Evan was a young man, worked with the youth, and teenagers liked him. There were some adults there. But they just began to pray that God would send revival. And the prayer that they prayed was bend the church and save the world. Bend the church and save the world. And Father, send the Holy Spirit now for Jesus' sake. Send the Holy Spirit now for Jesus' sake. Well, they had been praying for several hours. People were getting tired and ready to go home. And people began to leave the prayer meeting, including Evan Roberts' mother. And he became so frustrated with their apathy that not everyone shared the passion for revival that he had in his heart that he finally told them that we're going to lock the doors. And if you're not willing to stay, you need to go on and leave because we're not going to unlock the doors and let anybody else out until God sends revival. He was that confident. Now that thinned the crowd out even further. It was like I was thinking about leaving until he said that. That finished it. 
And so when the last one left, all that remained was Evan Roberts and 17 teenagers. And they just began to pray and call upon God to come in Wales. Now there are all kinds of stories about that night. I don't know how much of it is true and how much of it was just good preaching. We're not exactly sure how it all evolved, but what we do know is in that night prayer meeting, the windows of heaven over Wales did in fact begin to open, and God began to visit Moriah Chapel. What few people know, in fact, I've never read this in a book, and where I got some of my information was actually from Moriah Chapel on one of the visits that I was there where they had a young man that was a historian of that revival and had read every book and every letter and every newspaper article and heard every story that he could find and actually worked there as a guide, as an authority on the revival. But that night, the fire of God fell in two other places. There was a prayer meeting in another little church about six miles away where another group of people were praying for revival. And there was also a home prayer meeting about three miles away where a group of people, Christians, had felt stirred in their hearts to meet and to pray. You see, that's the Holy Spirit brooding and calling people. Remember when we talked about how John Wesley had said how God seldom, if ever, does anything until somebody asks him? And my brothers and sisters, it just seems that one of the things that God requires is that the Holy Spirit comes and He begins to stir in the hearts of people to begin to pray and begin to intercede the very thing that God wants to do and because of the authority of man and the authority of believers and the authority of churches, when Christians begin to pray it and begin to declare it, the membrane between the two realms begins to break and the heavenly realm begins to invade. That night at Moriah Chapel, the Lord began to visit. They prayed the bulk of the night and when it was over, they left convinced that God was about to do something wonderful and it was decided we're coming back and doing it again tonight. And they came back for another prayer meeting. And by the third night, the place was packed with people praying and interceding. The meetings were very spontaneous. Evan Roberts was preoccupied with letting the Holy Spirit do whatever he wanted to do. So therefore, there was no agenda. There was no, well, we're going to worship now. We're going to preach here. We're going to teach here. This one's going to do this and that one's going to. It was all spontaneous. But God began to breathe upon that week of prayer meetings and what had been some warm embers began to grow bright orange and little flames began to ignite. And those prayer meetings began to ignite in Wales. And then God began to breathe upon it and began to blow upon it. And God began to move in amazing ways all across Wales. Now some of my information has come from people in Canada, in Wales, in England, and in America who had relatives that were actually a part of that outpouring. A lot of my stories and information comes from 
what people have told me that family members had told them about what it was like in those days. One of the remarkable stories that I heard from a dear friend that has now gone to be with the Lord in England. He lived in England, but all of his family had been raised in Wales. Is they literally described the Welsh revival as being like a river that would flow in the valleys of Wales. And it was like an unseen force would come over an entire town or village. And everything in that village would get radically saved in a matter of just a few days. And then it was like the river would flow on down the valley to the next place and to the next place and to the next place. And interestingly enough, there were places that it just skipped right over. There were whole towns that were never touched by the Welsh Revival. That I mean every town down the valley that way would be ablaze with the power of God, the glory of God. Churches filled to capacity, people being saved. And it was like the cloud, the river, whatever, it would skip a town and pick up on the other side and just keep going and get the next ten towns and then skip another one. And my friend Carl Thomas in England told me that every one of those towns in Wales where the revival did not come, every one of them that skipped ultimately died. The coal mines closed, the economy dried up, people left, and you can go to those places today and you'll just see the remnant of what were once vibrant, alive, thriving Welsh coal mining towns. It just became rusted out relics that had been left behind for whatever reason. You see, my brothers and sisters, when revival comes, it brings the blessing of God. And when people reject it or despise it and refuse it, revival means to bring life again to something that's dead. And when something is dying and it refuses to be revived, what happens? It dies. It dies. The famous prayer of the Welsh revival was, Bend the church and save the world. And interestingly, this revival was carried by children and teenagers. It was the testimony of children and teenagers that God used in a phenomenal way. Most revivals, most great revivals, the fire carriers have been young people. I have a friend in Peterborough, Ontario, that he and his wife, both sets of their parents, were teenagers in the Welsh revival. And David's testimony, no, it was his wife Florence's testimony, was that her mother was a 14-year-old schoolgirl that was walking home from school when that revival started and was walking down a little gravel lane in England totally alone. And she said she just walked into a cloud of God. She'd never set foot in a church. She had never heard the gospel. She'd never read a Bible. She knew absolutely nothing about anything. And she said in a moment, she said, I just like stepped into the presence of God. Fourteen years old, she knelt down in the gravel on the road and said, God, I want to know you. She knew that this was God. And she loved being encountered by God. And she wanted to know God. And she met God there on a little country lane in Wales. It was later, after that experience, several nights later, that she went to a church and found out the gospel. 
found out it was Jesus. And she began to define something that had already happened to her. They say that one of the remarkable things about Wales is a coal mining and was a coal mine nation. They tell the stories of the coal miners that would come out of the coal mines at the end of the day, their faces and hands and clothes, just jet black, covered with soot. One of the more graphic descriptions is how the coal miners coming out of the coal mines would encounter God in that revival and how that you would see where the tears from their eyes had washed away like little rivers through the soot and the coal dust on their faces of the coal miners weeping under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit as God moved in such a profound way. The churches overflowed with people. So great was the effect of the Welsh revival. It affected the nation to such a measure that crime disappeared. Do you realize that there were entire cities and towns in Wales that laid off their police forces because the cops had nothing to do? All the crime disappeared. Bars completely closed down because nobody wanted to drink anymore. Gaming houses, gambling, prostitution, crime just came to a complete halt in Wales. It was a joke in the Welsh Revival because judges wore white gloves. It became a tradition over there that judges went to work every day wearing snow-white gloves to signify the fact that because revival had come and there was no crime, the judges had clean hands because they had no crimes to prosecute. The revival was so wonderful and the effect was so profound on the coal miners Did you know that it's a historical fact that they had to retrain the little ponies and the donkeys that pulled the coal carts out of the coal mines? They had to retrain all the animals that pulled the coal out of the mines because of the revival because when revival came, all the coal miners quit cussing and the little ponies and the donkeys had always worked according to verbal commands And now the coal miners are quit cussing and the little donkeys and the ponies, they didn't know what anybody wanted me to do. They had to teach them how to work because they weren't getting cussed anymore. (laughs) There's a museum that is there today. If you ever go to Wales, you can visit there. I can't pronounce the place where it's located. It's one of those long Welsh names. But it was recreated. It's an educational exhibit of the old coal mining industry. It's where they take children on field trips out of the schools and people go there to visit to see what Wales used to look like a hundred years ago and wanted to visit a real coal mine. And what they did is they actually fixed up a coal mine. But they had the gentleman's club at the coal mine. Now I say gentleman's club. What kind of image does that conjure up in your mind? Well, the gentleman's club was where the coal miners would go at the end of a hard day's work in the coal mine to hang out and relax with their friends and the other coal miners after work before they went home. They'd go to the gentleman's club. And in the gentleman's club were all the old tables and the chairs. But here in the gentleman's club, there's no booze. The bar has been removed. They have coffee. They have tea. 
They have Bibles everywhere, hymn books where the coal miners could sing. The Welsh people love to sing, even to this day. And one of the characteristics of the Welsh revival was the music, the singing in the spirit that they called it. And that revival, people would just suddenly be moved on by the Holy Spirit. And I mean, the Welsh would just begin to sing in the glory of God. And I believe that's what the angels were doing. I think I told you in an earlier session about the angels hovering the open heaven and the sound of angelic choirs over a whole valley. Well, the angels were just joining in with what was going on in the people, and the people were just joining in with what was going on with the angels because two worlds had become one because of an open heaven in those days. They had all this Christian literature that were there for the coal miners at the end of the day. They just wanted to come together and sing hymns and study the Bible and pray. That's revival. The economy was radically changed because all the money that was being spent on gambling and booze and all those kind of things, the people that got saved, they started working harder, making more money, taking their money home, spending it on their wives and their children and building new houses and buying clothing for their kids and shoes. And the economy of Wales just began to explode with growth and prosperity and blessings came upon Wales in a phenomenal way. I was in Cardiff, Wales several years ago doing some meetings Cardiff is about an hour and a half, probably, from where the Welsh Revival began, outside of Swansea. And I was doing some meetings in Cardiff, and I was in my hotel getting ready to go to the night meeting. And the television was on in my room, and they began coverage of a big soccer game, or soccer match, I guess they call it that was about to begin at the Millennium Stadium. The Millennium Stadium at that time was the most modern soccer stadium in all of Europe. It opened in 2000. Ultra-modern like one of our NFL stadiums in America. I mean, Jumbotron TV and the whole thing. And so I'm getting ready to go to the meeting when suddenly from Millennium Stadium I hear all this worship music. And I stop and I look and it's coming from about 70,000 Welshmen. And they're standing there in Millennium Stadium with their beer cans up singing hymns unto God. And I thought, dear Jesus, what in the world is going on there? Well, I couldn't wait to get to the night meeting that night to ask the pastor what in the world was going on at Millennium Stadium. He laughed. He said, John, When the Welsh revival came, so great was the effect of the revival that soccer and football, they call it football, we call it rugby, was suspended for three years. They didn't have sports events in Wales for three years. Can you imagine revival coming to America in such a way that we suspended Major League Baseball and NFL football and basketball and Who cares about playing golf? Nobody cares about sports because they're so eager to go to church. Well, it happened in Wales for three years. And when they finally decided to start playing soccer again, it was decided that before they played soccer in Wales that they would always have a big prayer meeting and then they would have a worship service. And to this day, over 105 years later, 
before they have soccer matches in Wales, everybody sings the great hymns of the church as a memory of what it was like in the Welsh Revival. Well, why was the Welsh Revival ultimately aborted? One of the reasons is Evan Roberts just got tired. He was just totally exhausted. He was getting three hours of sleep a night, if that, because of the meetings. He went for months and months and months. And I believe that ultimately he was seduced by Jezebel spirit that came through a particular woman and her husband that were friends of the revival and friends of the meetings and friends of Evan Roberts, that Evan Roberts lived in their home. And this woman, her name was Jessie Penn Lewis, told Evan, Evan, this thing's gotten too big and everybody's associating it with you and you need to step back because Evan was a humble man. He didn't want anything for himself. And she said, you've got to step away. You come to my house and live in my house and I'll take care of you and let God do the revival. And Evan just broke physically and was just physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted. And when he stepped back, the revival began to wane. And Evan Roberts stayed in that house for the next 10 or 12 years before finally he moved out. And Jesse Penn Lewis and her husband basically took over. They produced a magazine in the revival and were quoting Evan and all of these things. But ultimately the revival died. But Robert Slairdon in one of his books, God's General, talks about the fact that Evan never really preached very much again. I mean, he, was, he felt like his best ministry would be if he could just pray. But he said... Forty years later, when Evan was almost 70 years old, that from time to time Evan would show up in places and he to that day carried the glory of God with him whenever he came in. It's interesting, the opposition that the Welsh Revival got. One of the largest churches in Wales that was located in a place called Mirtha. I've preached in Mirtha. One of the most famous pastors of Wales was preaching against Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival every meeting. Evan was a young man. The weight of the criticism, the condemnation, the rejection of the religious order of the day, it just began to wear on him. And the revival began to wane. It lasted about 18 months, even after Evan had stepped away. The effects of the revival, however, when I was there, they say that the spiritual DNA of that revival in 1904 to 1906, that one in every four Christians alive today in the world can trace their spiritual genealogy back to the Welsh revival. One out of four globally can trace their spiritual genealogy back to the effects of the Welsh revival. The Welsh Revival went all over the world. But interestingly enough, it never went across the street. There was another church that was located across the street from Moriah Chapel. It never affected them. They came and had services every Sunday and every Wednesday, just like they had for years and years and years. They just complained about all the crowds that were constantly in the way and stepping in the flower bed and 
ruining the grass at their little church, trying to get to the revival. The revival went all over the world, but it never crossed the street to that little church. And to this day, there's just a vacant piece of land there. Now, you don't see these kind of things very often in Wales or England. They're very proud of their land, of their nation. They take care of everything. But the last time I was at Moriah Chapel, there was just a vacant lot across the street with weeds this tall and just garbage littered out there on the land where the church was that basically built a wall and said, don't let any of that come over here. And they're just kind of a garbage dump. At least they were the last time I was there at Moriah Chapel. You see, man, people, the church, cannot start revival, but we can sure stop it. We can't start them, but we can certainly stop them. Let me move quickly to the second revival that I want us to think about tonight, which was the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 in Los Angeles, California. And the man that God used to ignite that revival was a man by the name of James J. Seymour. He was an Afro-American. And in those days, Afro-Americans were not viewed. I mean, when James J. Seymour went to Charles Parham's Bible school in Houston, Texas, it was against the state laws of Texas for a black man to be in school. And so what they did is they put James J. Seymour's chair just outside the door and everybody in the class put their desk and chairs around the door so that James would legally be in compliance with the laws of Texas technically outside the classroom even though they'd moved the classroom to James. He was blind in one eye, but he was full of the fire of God. And James J. Seymour was invited to go and preach in a church in Los Angeles. And when he got out to Los Angeles, the woman that had invited him to come out there and preach shut down his meeting and said, you're not going to preach any of that around here. And so James was basically stuck in Los Angeles by the sovereign plans and purposes and designs of God. And he began to preach about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wasn't altogether quite sure what it was, but he was sure going to preach about it because they were just really kind of feeling their way along in those days before Azusa Street. The Azusa Street revival actually began in a house, but when the front porch collapsed under the weight of the people, they figured they'd move it over to the place at Azusa Street, but it was actually a place called Bonnie Bray, and then it was moved to an old building that had one time been a horse barn, kind of in an alley. That's when the revival came. Now, it's interesting to note that there were people in Los Angeles that were in communication by letters and correspondence with Wales. You see, the Azusa Street revival was actually a part of the same fire that had fallen in Wales. And there were people in Los Angeles that were writing letters. I mean, it might take months and months and months and months and months for a letter to ever get from California to Wales and a return. But they knew in Los Angeles about the move of God that was going on in Wales and they were contending for it. 
And they believed with all their heart that God wanted to do the same thing in Los Angeles, and they were praying. Men like Frank Bartleman, and, and there were others, and James J. Seymour were meeting nightly and praying that God would visit. But it's interesting that the week before the revival began, the largest earthquake in recorded history ever to hit the continental United States struck San Francisco, California in what came to be known as the Great San Francisco Earthquake. It was about a 7.8 on the Richter scale. The earth just literally shook for 60 seconds, and it broke gas lines, and those gas lines ignited, and approximately a third of the city of San Francisco was burned down. What did not fall to the ground under the devastation of the earthquake, a third of the city burned up. I mean, it was hard for them to even fight the fires. What they were actually doing was dynamiting buildings just to try to create a fire break, just to stop the fires. If we just dynamite them, blow them up, cause them to fall down, maybe we can slow the progress of the fires. There was a big cover-up about that whole thing. Officially, there were only, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of casualties of people died. But it was a cover-up because actually there were many thousands that died. They never counted the Chinese of Chinatown, and Chinatown was utterly destroyed. Because San Francisco was to be the site of the 1910 World's Fair. And they didn't want any bad publicity that people would be afraid to come to the World's Fair. And so they covered up much of the devastation. But that earthquake was of such a severity, it caused great alarm. And isn't it interesting that a week later, the Azusa Street Revival would ignite. In a time of national calamity and shaking, where people would be shaken out of their lethargy and shaken out of their slumber by a tragedy of a U.S. city falling, like San Francisco did. It was into that environment that the lightning of God struck and Azusa Street was birthed. There were healings. There were the gifts of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit came to the forefront in those days. There's a remarkable little book, and I have it in my library, and I can't think of its name right off the top of my head. I got it a couple of years ago. It's a recent book, and it was compiled on the testimonies of a man now up in years that was a teenager and went to a little church when he was a teenager where a lot of elderly people attended church that were a part of the Azusa Street Revival. These elderly people had been teenagers and children in the days of Azusa Street, and this teenage boy had heard all their stories and it held on to all of that, and somebody discovered it when he was a grown man getting up in years and thought, we've got to get all this on paper. And they wrote down a lot of the testimonies about the glory and how the, the teenagers and children would come to the Azusa Street Revival. And because of the glory of God that was there, it would come like a cloud, that they would actually bring glass containers and try to scoop it up and put a cork in it to take it home. But it would just be clear air. It was part of the historical record of all the times the Los Angeles Fire Department, such as they were with horse-drawn water tanks, 
came to the revival because of the flames of fire that could be seen dancing on the top of the Azusa Street building and the height of that revival as God was moving there. There were many healings, creative miracles, limbs growing out, creative things that happened that I had not read much about the miraculous at Azusa Street. We normally associate Azusa Street just with speaking in other tongues, but they had the entire package there. Well, why was the revival aborted? Why was it cut short? Basically, the Holy Spirit was grieved because of racism and bigotry. There were a lot of white preachers that didn't like it, that God had chosen a black man, James J. Seymour, to birth this great revival. They didn't like it. I mean, I shared with you last night the story of Charles Parham from Topeka, Kansas, a man that God had used to bring the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and how he went to Los Angeles. One of his students, James J. Seymour, that sat just outside the door as Parham taught. God had raised a spiritual son up, and rather than go out there and embrace him and say, James, pray for me that the fire that's on you, son, would be upon my life, Parham went out there and thought, I don't like this. What he really didn't like is white women being slain in the spirit with black ushers catching them. That bothered him. That's what set Parham up, is those white women getting touched by God and falling into the arms of black catchers. And I mean, he just went nuts because he'd been a Ku Klux Klan sympathizer. I'm not saying he was running around with a hood burning the cross, but he had some friends that did. And I mean, this thing just exposed bigotry and racism in people. And it was like, we're going to go have our own revival over here. We're not going to have anything to do with that black revival. We'll go over here and have a white revival. Do you realize every Pentecostal denomination in America tonight can trace its spiritual roots to Azusa Street? And the reason most of them were white <laughs> is they didn't want to be a part of what God had birthed with our Afro-American brothers and sisters. And they don't understand why the revival stopped. It stopped over competition. You see, every time revival begins, somebody's going to want to head it up. Somebody wants to be its spokesman. So they started fighting among themselves of who was going to be the chief and who would be the Indian. And the whole thing just fragmented into a thousand pieces. James J. Seymour died with a broken heart, with grief, because of what he'd seen God do and how ultimately it just got plowed under by stupid people. Stupid people killed what God did. But you know, we must take encouragement from that because God is well able to take care of his reputation. And James J. Seymour didn't live long enough to see that the revival that God had used him to birth was just the first one of a whole century full of revivals and a move of God that would sweep around the world in the years and decades to follow. That's effect would still be felt here tonight because of the work that God had begun in those days. God's bigger than a man. God's bigger than a woman. God's bigger than a church. God's bigger than a meeting. God's bigger than a movement. And before the day is over, he's going to take care of his own reputation. And the Holy Spirit's going to make Jesus famous in our generation. And guess what? We get to see it.
Hallelujah.